Welcome to Under the Bleachers. This is a podcast that explores all things sports, all things queer, and the fabulous intersection where queer and sports meet. This podcast is brought to you by Team DC, the nonprofit association of LGBTQ plus sports and recreation organizations in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Laura. I'm the vice president of Team DC, and I've played and loved sports my whole life. I've played with Team DC member clubs, the DC Furies Women's Rugby Club, and Rogue Darts. And I'm Gabe. I'm also on the board of Team DC, and I'm a diehard sports fan. I've played with many of the Team DC member clubs, including the DC Gay Flag Football League, Kara Bowling, Stonewall Kickball, Rogue Darts, and the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. I'm also a member of the DC Different Drummers, and I do a little bit of drag on the side. We hope you enjoy this week's trip under the bleachers. Welcome everyone, Laura and Gabe here. It's October 25th, and you're listening to Season 3, Episode 7 of Under the Bleachers. On this podcast, we take turns, and this week it's Gabe's turn to choose the topics. For our discussion of all things queer, he chose drag high school halftime shows. For our conversation on all things sports, we're talking about a new agreement with the NFL's concussion settlement. And for our topic at the intersection of sports and queer, we're dancing in the Boston Red Sox clubhouse. After that, we're going to share our interview with area athlete and coach Stephanie Vestal. First, a quick update on Team DC. Registration is now open for Challenge Cup 3. This team competition event will take place in person on November 20th at Pitchers. Go to teamdc.rallyup.com backslash challenge cup three. That's three I's, I-I-I, or teamdc.org to register. Teams of five will compete in trivia, beer pong, darts, flip cup, and more to take the challenge cup. You can also buy raffle tickets to win four lower level seats to a Nats game next season. Raffle tickets are available on the event registration page. Team DC will be hosting its first marginalized gender sports mixer on November 17th at 6.30 at Aloho. This event is for women, trans, and non-binary athletes and is a great opportunity to meet other area athletes. Mix and mingle, enjoy free food and great drink specials, and have a chance to win one of our amazing door prizes. Be sure to follow Team DC and its member clubs on social media for updates. Find Team DC on Facebook at Team DC LGBT and on Twitter and Instagram at Team DC Sports. Gabe and I will be bringing you new episodes of Under the Bleachers every Monday at underthebleachers.podbean.com on Apple Podcasts and on Google Podcasts. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Taking the extra few seconds to hit those buttons or type a quick review means a lot to help us get the word out. And share us with a friend or two if you know people that would be interested in listening in. With that, here's Gabe with our first topic in this week's trip, Under the Bleachers. Okay, so first up in my queer topic are two things I love, drag shows and football. On October 15th, about 30 students and staff of Burlington and South Burlington High School in Vermont performed as drag queens and kings during the high school's homecoming halftime show. Performers danced on the field at Todrick Hall's Rainbow Rain and each had a solo moment to show their stuff and be cheered on by a full stadium of fans who were wearing rainbow colors and waving different pride flags. The event was conceived by English teacher Andrew Lavalley, who himself was dressed in a Marie Antoinette-inspired look. The school's athletic director, Karen Pinckney, suggested the performance should be done during halftime. Pinckney, who is Black, stated the school has given him space to uplift his voice, and it was his turn to return the favor and, quote, uplift the voices of another marginalized group and share a space in athletic in the athletics realm that doesn't normally get shared. The performance was a few weeks after the school athletics program was marred by an incident where racist and transphobic slurs were yelled at Burlington High School volleyball players by an opposing rival team. Burlington High School principal Lauren McBride said she overheard a father talking to his two sons who did not know what drag was and was explained to them what drag was. And the kids said they found it pretty cool. All right, Laura, so did you hear about this story? Did you see any of the pictures of the teachers and students who performed? And how long is it until RuPaul performs at the Super Bowl halftime show? <laughs> uh, I did not see the pictures. This is an interesting story. I think, you know, sounds fun. Um, I personally kind of can't imagine RuPaul wanting to perform at the, NFL, <laughs> at the Super Bowl halftime show. I don't know. That doesn't seem like as good of a gig as everybody makes it out to be. Hey, Carol Channing was what, in Super Bowl one. Is that right? Yes. Oh, all right. I don't know. I, I mean, listen, here's the thing. I'm all for it. 
if a drag performance, uh, you know, it entertains people, a lot of people really enjoy it. So I see no reason why it shouldn't be, you know, one of the options for a Super Bowl halftime show. I feel like in recent years, like the halftime show is like more about the spectacle of like the stage and the lighting and the whatever fireworks and all that than the actual music. Um, so maybe uh, maybe a nice lip sync performance is, is just <laughs> what they need. <laughs> well, that's exactly what some of those performers are doing. But um, I don't know. I, I thought it was really cool that these students and the teachers got to uh, get together and do this and that they were asked to do it at their homecoming halftime show. Yeah, I, I mean, a I'm a deal. little surprised, like, that there were that many people who were, like, into drag in Bullington well, I, High I was School. Looking into it. I think it, it's three high schools that I guess they're small enough, so they all do sports together. Oh. Something like that. Okay. But I mean, I'm just, that doesn't make me less surprised. I mean, these are, like, really small towns, really small schools. I'm pretty surprised they had, like, 30 kids who were into doing drag. Yeah, and teachers, which I thought yeah. was kind of cool. Yeah, but it's a cool thing, like when teachers and students can kind of do projects like that together. Um, yeah, I mean, I can just imagine, like, if this had, were, were to happen when I was in high school, how crazy that would be, and how kind of I don't know, different and life changing it might have been. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I mean, I think most of adulthood is looking back on your childhood and identifying all the places where um, you would have been more emotionally sound if things had been had worked out differently for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, this, is a, this is a cool idea and I'm all for it. You know, I hope that um, I mean, I wonder how many of those kids like it was the first time they ever did drag and like how many of them would maybe want to do it again like it'd be it would be interesting to see like how much of it really was representative of people who like were really into drag and felt like this was a chance for them to be seen as opposed to it just being like a weird opportunity for people to do do a one-time thing that they thought would be funny but they're not really but it's not really about who they are you know yeah um there was uh i think one of the quotes from one of the drama teachers of one of the high schools or whatever who actually did kind of a lesson on how to create a character and how to create a different persona so that if some of the kids were doing drag, they would go into their drag persona, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right, though. It's cool. Like, I mean, make it an all around experience for people. You know, it shouldn't just be about, you know, putting on opposite gender or... clothes or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I think the real power of drag is in creating, you know, a, a, like an alter ego for yourself, you know? Yeah, that's the cool thing. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I give this two thumbs up. I think it's a cool idea. Maybe uh, let's do more highlighting um, kids who have different interests and uh, are marginalized in different ways in high school by putting them, giving them a platform at these big seminal high school events that are usually only about the most popular kids in school. Yeah, and giving them a spotlight. I mean, I thought that was really cool. It's kind of a learning moment for the community as well. Yeah, very cool. All right, what's up in sports? All right, moving on to my sports topic. Okay, so we've talked about concussions in the NFL previously and under the bleachers. And just last week, the NFL announced that they would be ending race-based adjustments in dementia testing that some critics say make it difficult for black retirees to qualify for awards that come from a $1 billion settlement on concussion claims. The testing plan phases out, quote, race norming, which may have prevented hundreds of black NFL players who suffer from dementia to win awards of $500,000 or more. Players will now have the chance to retake cognitive tests or have their previous test scores rescored. The new plan was decided in closed door negotiations stemming from a player's lawsuit. We look forward to the court's prompt approval of the agreement which provides for a race-neutral evaluation process that will ensure diagnostic accuracy and fairness in the concussion settlement, the NFL said in a statement. The new proposal still needs to be approved by a federal judge. 70% of active NFL players and 60% of living retired players are Black and will be affected by this agreement. The concussion fund has paid out over $821 million for five types of brain injuries, and lawyers suspect that white players were receiving two to three times more awards than black players. The binary scoring system in dementia testing, which separates black individuals from 
everyone else, was developed in the 1990s and is a crude way to factor in a patient's socioeconomic status. This assumes that black players start with a lower cognitive function. About 2,000 men have applied for dementia payouts, but only 30% have been approved, with awards averaging $715,000 for those with advanced dementia and $523,000 for those with early dementia. Almost 20,000 retired NFL players have signed up for the settlement program, which offers monitoring, testing, and compensation. The NFL would admit to no wrongdoing under this agreement. All right, Laura, so any thoughts on this? And do you think the NFL should be doing more for their retired players? Yeah, um, I mean, okay, so I'm not a doctor. And so I don't know. Neither am I. Right, full, like, full, full disclosure. Can't speak, can't speak to the merits it, other than to say it is, uh, I am skeptical to say the least that race um, is a valid factor in race alone is a valid factor in measuring a person's cognitive ability. Yeah. So I think <laughs> this was clearly a very outdated uh, notion. This is not like the only time I've heard of this happening in the medical community, right? Like a lot of, um, historically, a lot of black people have been denied organ transplants because different criteria are applied um, based on this preconceived notion that people in like wait, like 30, 40 years ago, somebody decided that they would assume that black people had like greater muscle mass or like that their bones weighed more. And then all of a sudden, all these medical um, things got screwed up because they would factor in race and you wouldn't get the right numbers and the, it wouldn't be accurate and people were being denied medical care. So this sounds like just one more of those. Um, so I'm glad that they are getting rid of it, obviously. I also think that, um, you know, I don't know what the long-term like, healthcare plan in terms of like medical insurance and treatment that retired NFL players benefit from. I hope it's really good because for somebody who has um, advanced dementia at a young age, thanks to too many concussions from playing in the NFL, $700,000 isn't going to that's not going to uh, be much. Know, isn't going to put a yeah. dent into that, into their medical care. So, I, I, but I don't know. I mean, maybe they have a really great platinum healthcare system for retired NFL players, and this is just on top of that. But I, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think these payouts are enough, and I don't think that the NFL, um, I, I do think that the NFL has like a real responsibility to these retired players to make sure that they're getting adequate and proper health care going forward. Oh, definitely. So there were in the article, they were highlighting um, a couple players and there was one player who went to Stanford after the NFL has a degree, super highly educated, but he's in his 40s with full onset dementia. Yeah. And, it, you know, at age 40 and it's 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 just not enough. Like the NFL could have done a lot more. Yeah. And it's it's crazy to think that, you know, they have 20,000 players that are now. Uh, under this like settlement program where they can actually monitor them. And the, the NFL knows that they have a problem with concussions right. and with, you know, their, their players. Yeah. And I mean, we've talked a little bit about the NFL has been taking steps in recent years to get safer um, equipment and to have better concussion protocols and rules to try to make this problem, to try to help with this problem for, you know, people going forward clearly the people who already are suffering from the effects, like there's nothing you can do to reverse that. You just have to make sure that they're well taken care of for the rest of their lives. That's the only thing you can do. Um, my concern is, you know, at some point a doctor is going to need to make the evaluation of whether it is impossible regardless that, you know, at some point you might say there are not enough preventative measures that you can take to make this sport safe enough that it's worth playing yeah right and i don't think at this point anybody has um made that determination right like they're still working at it but people are still getting sick and it's scary so you know i, I don't know it's it's tough i get that people how much people love football and, the, and it's the game's been around forever and you want to keep playing it um, but at some point, if it turns out that there's no safe way to do it, then you're going to have to either get rid of the sport or change the rules to make it safer. 
Yeah. And so they're talking about how expensive this whole um, agreement is going to be now, because now you're going to have more players that will hopefully be able to get these awards. Okay. The NFL is like the most profitable entity in the world, (laughs) short of like the Catholic church is like the only thing more profitable, right? Like, so I don't care. Right. I mean, come on. Like you've got a bunch of 40 year old people who are, suffering a permanent disability for the rest of their life because of the working conditions they work in. Yeah. And, you know, they reached this settlement and agreed that they were going to compensate these people. And then they started administering the settlement in a way that purposefully denied relief to a lot of the people who earned it, who deserved yep. <laughs> it, who qualified for it. And so that's bullshit. And if you, you know, you, you want to honor the settlement, you have to pay for everybody, not, you know, not just some. Yeah, so it'll be interesting. I know there's there's uh, two other settlements that or two other uh, lawsuits that are stemming from the settlement, and it'll be interesting to see what these federal judges say. Uh, this one came out of Philadelphia just um, yesterday, but we'll see what more comes of it because you know everything's again off the record, kind of closed door type negotiations and stuff like that. But they're trying to figure out you know what else is going to come of this. You know, this is this is one test that. Uh, was being used and it, it came out of the news it came out of the wash about what was going on so you can just imagine what else uh is being kind of looked upon and when they make these determinations of who gets money or not but also yeah is it worth it uh, well you know what i mean I, I listen these things these class action settlements are never perfect because there is no perfect way to compensate everybody yeah. if you were going to give everybody every penny on the dollar of what they were owed then that wouldn't be a settlement Right. A settlement is where you compromise and nobody gets 100 percent what they want. Yeah. Um, and it's hard. I mean, like, look at how hard it was for I, I just watched a movie about the guy who came up with the crazy ass formula to try to um, figure out how to give out money in the class action settlement fund that was set up for 9-11 victims. I mean, it's it, there is no like proper way to determine no like truly fair way unless you go person by person by person and have an unlimited amount of money to start with so that you can give everybody everything that they need right some people are not going to get everything it's unfortunate but that's the way these things work that said there's no excuse for doing it in a racist way or doing it in a way that is fundamentally unfair so they um But, you know, I I believe that people are trying their best. You know, I I wouldn't, I'm not accusing anybody of using this formula with bad faith. I assume that this formula that was race-based was something that came from the AMA, just like a bunch of other bad formulas that people have been finding. But we're not, I'm not trying to say that they knew it was bad or like did it in bad faith. But once you discover it and you bring it to people's attention, then yeah, you got to get rid of it. Yeah, they were talking about how it was never, again, never meant to be used in a in a court setting or something like that. Like it was never meant yeah. to be to to calculate payments or an award or something. Right. Um, it, it's it's like certain certain like standards and scales that they use to make determinations about the level of somebody's um, condition in a medical setting. A lot of them have been found in recent years to be really racist and screwed up. And so, you know, there, there needs to be a complete overhaul of all of them, but I don't think anybody who, you know, went and used this did it because they knew it was bad or knew that it was racist. You know, it's, these are problems and you just have to address them when, when you learn them. And it looks like that they have, you know, have done the right thing with it. So I don't think we need to like be on some kind of a witch hunt to figure out what went wrong in the first place. I think we just, you know, you just got to move forward and hope that again, you got to do it as fairly as possible and you got to help as many people as, as best as you can. So, yep. So we'll see what comes of these lawsuits and hopefully uh, people get, I guess what they deserve, but yeah. kind of crazy still. <laughs> well, we'll keep, we'll keep an eye on it. But uh, in the meantime, what is going on at the intersection of sports and queer? All right. For this week's topic at the intersection of sports and queer, one of the best sports traditions in the MLB is the team playoff anthem. We all remember how Baby Shark took D.C. by storm in 2019 and helped rally the Nationals to a World Series win. This year, the Boston Red Sox have chosen the queer anthem, Dancing on My Own, to help rally the team and celebrate in the clubhouse. 
Now, we here at Under the Bleachers, Stan Robin, but the version the Red Sox are partying to is the Tiesto remix, which uses vocals by gay artist and Britain's Got Talent legend, Calum Scott. If you haven't heard the original Calum Scott version, which he sang on the show, Scott changes the lyrics to be about a gay man seeing his crush go off with another person. Red Sox catcher Kevin Ploiecki told the New York Times he started playing the song in 2020 to annoy his teammate Mitch Moreland and later used it as his walk-up song. Kalen Scott was invited to throw out the first pitch at game four of the ALCS. And fans have been sharing videos of themselves dancing to the song, and even Robin shared a video of the team celebrating and showering themselves with beer after advancing to the ALCS. Yeah, if you haven't seen the celebration video, you need to check it out, especially for the shirtless and drenched Kike Hernandez. So, so long, sweet Caroline. All right, Laura, so have you seen any of these celebration videos which have taken over the internet? They've been in all the sports uh, highlight reels. And what queer anthems do you think would make an excellent celebration song? Okay. Number one, this is one of the best songs that was ever created <laughs> in the world. And Robin is a god. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm also fine with this version of the song, although Robin did not need any improving. Uh, number two sweet caroline is one of the worst songs that was ever created in the history of music so this is a really really nice uh substitution i do think it's a very weird song to use in this context oh that's when you think when you listen to the lyrics and think about it you're like this actually doesn't really sound like a pump-up song to me at all (laughs) Uh, i mean it's got a great beat but i find this very bizarre i do however think to your question that like most lady gaga songs would be excellent celebration songs also as your pump-up playoff song yeah, I mean, I think Lady Lady Gaga both has great beats, but often like really pumps herself up in her lyrics and uh, praises her fans. So I think that like those would be great. Also, Lizzo, Lizzo, bitch, Lizzo's got some, Lizzo's got some songs that when you listen to it, you just feel like you are the queen of the world and you can do anything. So I think those would be really good pump up and celebration songs. Yeah. What about like- you? I've been going through my like playlist because I do like when I play football, I do have a kind of like a pump up song with all like these queer anthems. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of Gaga. There's some Beyonce in there that usually brings people up. What's that song? Absolutely not. Who sings that? Oh, Deborah Cox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's like a pride standard. You know, she goes around prides, collects her checks. Yeah. It's It's also a great great pump up song. song. Also, it's a a great great song. song. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. That is a phenomenal song. I just, I think, I don't know if I know any other songs by Deborah Cox, so I, I hesitated <laughs> to the say the name. I wasn't positive <laughs> I was getting it right, but I feel good about that. Um, no, I think this is great. And I also think that Kevin Ploiecki saying that he started doing it just to annoy one of his teammates is one of my favorite parts. Because oh, yeah, because like, I love, like, I guess like the joke is like, hey guys, have you heard this song? And they're like, what song? And then he plays it and they all just start dancing. <laughs> oh, whatever. It sounds good to me, man. I'm down. I'm down with it. I'm, you know, not like really super on the Red Sox bandwagon though. So yeah, I think they're going to lose, but it's okay. It's okay. We get these wonderful videos. Like the best, let's see if we can post it in, uh, in the show notes is there's a video where they advance to the next round and they're just like throwing beer and champagne at each other. And they're singing to dancing on my own while like the commentators are talking about baseball. And it's just hilarious <laughs> to see what's going on. And they're just running will, around like shirtless post, and crazy with the goggles on. I will post for sure. I will find a couple of these videos <laughs> and post them in the show notes. Everyone go watch and uh, look, look at some shirtless athletes. Yeah, covered in beer and wearing goggles. Mmm, yummy. <laughs> Okay, that's this week's Under the Bleachers roundup of things queer, things sports, and things at the intersection of sports and queer. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll share our interview with area athlete and coach Stephanie Vestal. Welcome back to Under the Bleachers. Uh, Today we have Stephanie Vestal. Stephanie's the head field hockey coach at Justice High School in Falls Church, Virginia, where she also coaches JV Lacrosse. Stephanie also coaches with Beyond Sticks, which is a youth field hockey program 
whose mission is not to only train great field hockey players, but also to teach student athletes to assess character, growth, grow into reliable teammates, and become more internally confident. Stephanie is also a member of the Team DC Scholarship Committee. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her wife and her dog, Fala. Hi, Steph. How are you? Hey, Gabe. Hey, Laura. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, joining us on Under the Bleachers. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. All right, so let's go into our questions real quick. So did you grow up playing sports? Yes, I can't remember a time when I, in my life, when I wasn't playing sports or sports wasn't a part of my life. Um, when I was really little, I think like lots of small girls in the 1980s, I was put into dance um, and I quickly <laughs> exited myself from that. And I think I was actually, if my mom and I are remembering the story correctly, I was uh, kindly or not so kindly, um, suggested to find other uses for my energy by my like three or four year old ballet instructor. Um, and so it was pretty quick that that was not the scene for me, but I moved on to gymnastics, which I enjoyed a lot. Um, I also, but I really was into like basketball, baseball, sports like that. Um, when I was about six, I remember uh, the little league baseball team in my town started letting girls play, which was a pretty big deal. So I got to play baseball. The bummer was that I was like the only girl on the team because they were spreading out the girls because they didn't want to like punish the boys by having too many girls on a team. It was a very not cool thing. Um, it wasn't a huge amount of fun, especially I loved hitting a ball and running. It wasn't a lot of fun just in terms of the dynamic. And so actually my dad, my best friend's dad and some other families in town got together and created a softball league for girls, which was phenomenal. And I stayed in that league all through elementary, middle, high school. Um, so I played lots of softball growing up uh, in the summers, which I loved. Um, I played rec basketball a lot. I was on the basketball team and softball team in my middle school. I was a three-sport athlete in high school playing field hockey, basketball, and I switched over to track in the spring um, at the urging of my field hockey coach so I wouldn't get hurt in softball since I was a catcher. Um, and I was at that time really into field hockey and, and looking to go to college. So I opted for track in high school. And then ironically, I actually get a, uh, ended up being – a little more successful in track and ended up going to college and doing indoor and outdoor track and then doing club um, field hockey in college as well. So after college, I've continued to play some sports and done lots of coaching, of course. So it, it's just been a huge part of my life for as long as I can remember. Awesome. And you've probably had a whole bunch of coaches throughout your career, but do you have a couple or maybe one that's your favorite or someone that's inspired you? Yeah. I mean, I, I can remember lots of my coaches. Um, and a couple stick out in my mind. My high school basketball coaches, um, our JV and varsity teams were coached by father and son uh, and had a really great dynamic. And what I really remember about my high school basketball program was our team just, we weren't good. Like we were, it was fun and we had lots of fun and we had individual good players. Our team was, wasn't good. We had lots of really tough competition. Um, we had a couple decent seasons, but we were more often than not losing more than we were winning. But I, I always look forward to basketball. I always wanted to go back each week, each day, each season. The coaches, uh, they just made it really fun. Um, but they also, they also tr treated us like we were, we were not, they didn't treat us like we were a losing team, right? We came back every day with the expectation that we were going to work harder and get better every day and that we were going to be amazing and we were going to have a breakthrough season. Um, and it was just, it was a really competitive and high expectations environment um, when it could have been really easy to just say, oh yeah, we're, you know, playing Hill House again, we're going to get crushed. Right. It, so I just, I remember that really specifically about them. Um, and that was, and that made me feel real good. But I think like, if I had to pick one solely inspirational coach, I would have to lean towards my high school field hockey coach, uh, Pam Baker. And I still remember really everything about her. I in touch with her, um, through social media. And probably has played the biggest role in my life, um, just instilling in me a lot of what I transfer into coaching today, right? So a lot of the things I recognize about my coaching abilities or my coaching success, I can track back to what I learned from her in high school. Um, she managed, she was able to push us like really to our individual and team limits, but created a really fun and like welcoming environment. Um, so it, it felt like a good team to be on, but also we were constantly working and getting better and we had lots of success. So we got incrementally better throughout my high school career and ended up qualifying for the state tournament my last two years there, which was a, a big deal for our school history. 
Yeah, that's awesome. No, I, I mean, I went to a small high school and every time we, you know, won a sectionals and got to go play in the, a state tournament and got to go to like the Carrier Dome in Syracuse and play, it was a huge deal for us, yeah. um, especially coming from a small school. Yeah. And I, yeah, everything you say resonates. Um, I, I had some coaches in my high school years who were tremendously good at getting you to give your all, but we're not necessarily um, good at building a positive atmosphere where people um, were enjoying themselves. So you know, it's a really important combination and it's great to hear that you had such positive experiences. Um, that probably has something to do with you loving the sport and loving the idea of coaching enough that you went on to become a coach yourself. Tell us about how you made that transition and when that sort of came about. Did you always know you wanted to be a coach eventually or did it pop into your head someday? I mean, I think so. I think if you asked me when I was much younger, I would have said I was going to go to college and play basketball for Gino Orama at UConn since I'm from Connecticut. Yeah, and that was a like, that was a hardcore goal for any me of us. Time, right? Right. Until <laughs> I realized I was like, any, if you asked any of us, like in the eight, late 80s right. and the 90s, that's yeah. what we would have said. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Me and Rebecca Lobo, we're going to be oh. good friends. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, I was like, I'm five foot four. Of course he's going to want me. <laughs> of course. Right. And at some point, Actually, probably later than it should have been. I came to the realization that this wasn't going to happen. Um, but like, I, I always knew that sports was going to be a part of my life. Right. And so I, I think the natural transition for me after high school was, or after college rather, was to look into coaching opportunities. And I still, I, I still play rec field hockey with an adult organization. Like I still am into playing sports too. Um, that's important for me, but I also still play on the field when I'm coaching. Right. I, I jump in there with my players too. Um, and I'm never afraid to do that. But I mean, I started coaching early on, like a lot of high school and college athletes. I was a counselor at camps throughout the summer. I helped out at clinics throughout the year that my coaches were running. Um, so I was like always kind of, as I was getting older, always put into some of those roles. And I found that I really enjoyed it. And I was pretty good at it. Um, actually, you know, I, I got a lot of feedback that I was, that it was a, a good fit for me. And that helped transition me into coaching. Um, you know, I've done rec um, leagues. And that's kind of how I started when I first moved down to DC. I moved to DC a year after I graduated college and just was really missing field hockey a lot and found this rec league, CYA, it's like Centerville Youth Field Hockey. And this coach, uh, Coach Star Carl, who's a really big field hockey name um, in Northern Virginia, has done lots for youth field hockey and, and for Westfield High School. Um, so she actually gave me my first coaching job and that kind of moved me into different groups and I found other rec leagues and club teams and got my first high school coaching position with field hockey at Thomas Jefferson High School um, it, about 11, 12 years ago um, and I've gone from there and you know I've just always found that coaching is a place where I'm really happy and I feel like I have an impact and I also feel like I'm learning things and I'm developing things and I'm growing as a person too and Field hockey has been my main sport for coaching, but um, I have done some basketball coaching at Thomas Jefferson when I was first there. And then, as you said, I, I coach JV lacrosse now. So I've done, I did a, I did the first three weeks of the 2020 season and then it was COVID. <laughs> and then this past year in 2021, we had a shortened season. So I've done, you know, a season and a few weeks of lacrosse and I never played lacrosse growing up, um, but the high school I work at, uh, that I coach field hockey at, you know, they asked me if I would consider it. And I was like, I know how to coach. I can, I can get kids in shape and I can coach things, but I'll need some help with the lacrosse part. So, and it was great. And they were super <laughs> supportive. And I worked with the, the varsity coach and other members of the staff to kind of learn a little bit more of the technical details, but it was really actually pretty easy to pick up. And again, I, I really enjoy coaching. So I like sought out other opportunities and like watched some videos and and learn some things. And, you know, we had a, a pretty decent JV lacrosse season this past year with a a coach that knew at sometimes less than some of the players did about the sport, but we have fun and, um, you know, worked hard. And, you know, a lot of the goal of JV lacrosse, JV, anything is just developing players to like, like a sport, to like a team setting and to get ready for varsity. And I think we accomplished that. Yeah, that's great. And I, I don't know if you're familiar, but my current favorite television show, Ted Lasso, is a show <laughs> that, you know, focuses on an American football coach who goes overseas and coaches a soccer club in, outside of London. So I, I fully believe that uh, coaching skills are more important in the transfer than the, the sport itself, especially yeah, yeah. when you are talking about amateur athletes and particularly the pre-varsity level 
Um, so yeah, I think that's yeah, really yeah. cool. Yeah, there's so much more to coaching than just like knowing the ins and outs and the and the rules. So absolutely right. Yeah, Ted Lasso is a great show. <laughs> I this is a plug for Ted Lasso. Everybody go watch that right now. <laughs> yes. it, is, it will make your it will make your heart smile. It makes every it makes everything better. Yep. Um, so that's great. And a lot of what you said um, kind of resonates and leans into this next question, which is we like to talk to athletes all the time and ask them how their coaches have impacted their lives um, off the playing field. And I would like to turn that around on you and ask you, um, how do you think your players over the years have impacted your life and off of the, off of the athletic field? Yeah, I think there's lots of ways. I mean, my players push me every day to be better, um, a better coach, a better person. Uh, they, they ask questions, whether it's a question, just general questions, like we're just talking about things or they're, they're questioning things like, you know, what's the point of this drill or, or can we do this? Or I noticed this in the game, like we want to work on this. Like they, they share what they think the team needs. They share what they think they need as individuals. And I, you know, do my best to encourage them to do that. Right. Like I'm not the one on the playing field, you know, seeing everything that they see. I have a different vantage point when we play games. Right. So I'm always asking my players, like, what do you think we need to do? You know, what happened in this play? You know, when we watch film, I'm always looking for them to critique and for them to talk because I'm going to learn a lot more about how they're seeing the field, how they're seeing the game. And so it's going to always help me better. Um, but it's also, you know, it's, it's bigger than that. You know, my players have helped me think about what qualities are required of being a good coach. Cause as we've said, it's not just about, do I know the, do I know what drills to do? And do I know the rules of the game? It's, um, you know, it's about how are we creating a culture, a community um, for our team, for our players? How are we inspiring everyone? How are we, pushing each other to just be better people. And then, so then when the season's over, we continue to keep those qualities in other aspects of our life. Um, and so it's just, it's been great interaction. Just, you know, they have different, they're growing up at a different time than I'm growing up. So we just have lots of good conversations and, um, I, you know, I, I enjoy talking to them and, you know, hearing about what's going on in their world and, and thinking about how that is going to impact us as a team and, and what we need to do and, and talk about. Cool. And do, do any of those like uh, non-athletic skills or traits, they pop out that, you know, uh, students and even <clears throat> us who play sports uh, develop through sports? Well, they're amazing at social media. So anytime I need <laughs> like a, a like, like a cool like picture for our, because we have a team Instagram, Justice Focke, follow us, <laughs> a little plug there. But they, you know, they create these great images and, and you know, videos and things for us. Um, last last well a year and a half ago now so during COVID I'm sure you guys know John Krasinski did some good news and our team was featured on one of the episodes because we did this like air dribbling thing with field hockey so you like take your stick and you juggle the ball in the air and one of my or a bunch of my players like coordinated it and they said you know a bunch of us took a video of us doing it on our own we sent it to one of the players she fancied it all together did some kind of TikTok something to it and there's music and whatever and she sent it back to me. And then all I did was tweet at John Krasinski and some good news, which is a level of social media that I can handle. And we appeared on their next episode. Um, That's awesome. You know, as like a cool, like, what are your sports teams doing during quarantine and shutdown? Um, and so they're just like, they just are amazing young adults and, um, you know, have amazing skills. And it's, you know, goes beyond that too. They're just, they're growing up in like, they're having this weird time. And especially lately with COVID, like, my seniors now, the last time they were in a school building for real, they were sophomores. Like the difference between that like maturity, that like level of your life, that, that point in your life is huge. And so they're just going through a lot of stuff and it's good to talk to them and it's good to hear their perspective. And it's, um, it's good to remember that we need to include them and not forget that, you know, they're going through things in a different way than we are and seeing things in a different way. And, and we can't just kind of overlook it because they're kids and we can't just say, well, I'm the coach and I need to do this. We have to really incorporate everyone in and, and do things as a team. Yeah, that, that is a great point. I think about that sometimes. My niece is a senior now, and so she had this experience going from a sophomore to a senior, and it's just, it's a really weird whole new world. Um, luckily, she plays a lot of sports, including travel okay. leagues, so she did get to spend, spend a lot of time okay. with her travel teams in the year off, but what a bizarre uh, way to go through high school. Yeah. Um, 
Let me ask you this. Were you out as a student athlete, either in high school or college? I wasn't. Um, I, I mean, I came up through sports um, in the 90s, early 2000s. Um, growing up, like before I went to college, I went to college or I went to high school and grew up in a small, like home, very homogeneous, very Catholic suburb in Connecticut. It was just not it wasn't, it kind of didn't even cross my mind to, to come out, um, before I, you know, I hardly, I hardly knew anyone period who was in the LGBTQ plus community growing up, right. Let alone an athletic, someone in an athletic circle or someone in my athletic circle, right. I had no real, real role models to look up to, right. Like, I mean, honestly, probably the first thing I can remember about learning about someone coming out was watching Ellen, like watching the TV show when Ellen came out, right. That's like probably the first form memory I have of like, seeing someone talk about being gay right yeah and and that was like I think 97 ish something like that right um so you know and and for very similar reasons I I also just I wasn't completely confident in myself um I wasn't really comfortable with myself until after college for a lot of the same reasons I was constantly thinking about my religious upbringing my hometown the people around me um and, you know, and then struggling with just not having anyone that I could really confide in or see as a mentor, um, I think really delayed me um, feeling comfortable coming out. Like I had, you know, I had some really great teams and great communities and great coaches. Um, and so, you know, I like to think that in some situations, had I come out, it w- I would have been received and, and it would have been, it would have been okay, but I'm not entirely sure, honestly, um, that yeah. that would be true, so. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, a lot of what you said sounds really familiar to my experience as well. And I, when I went to college, I discovered rugby and became, joined the rugby team and rugby actually became a big part of my uh, coming out and sort of learning a lot about myself and uh, my own identity. Did, do you think sports had any impact um, on your coming out journey? Uh, definitely. I would like to make a quick plug for rugby. My high school, my college had like a intramural rugby, like team thing. And I loved watching them. We didn't, our track coach very much shy to oh, yeah. not like us to do other things. Um, but I went and watched some games and it looked like lots of fun. Well, I imagine not only does he probably want you to spend your time focusing on track of all the things that you could do, <laughs> a ton, no, like full context sport is probably <laughs> not at the top of his list. With, with little to no padding and lots of rolling around. Yeah, that was, yeah, no good. Um, yeah, but sports, I, I think, I mean, I think the natural answer is yes, of course, because sports has always just been a constant in my life. It, it absolutely has been a big part of my coming out story. Um, you know, I've, like I said, after college, I kind of rolled right back into sports in a little bit of different ways, but continued that into sports. And you know, in the years after college, when I was deciding to come out, some of the first people I told were friends that I had made um, in coaching circles and in like adult leagues that I was playing in, right? Like people who I were felt comfortable with and whether they were members of the LGBTQ plus community or they weren't, I saw them as allies regardless and was really comfortable talking to them and, um, and just being myself with them. Um, and I think because of that experience, because, and, and it was, it was received really well. Like I, there was never a problem. It was like, oh yeah, okay, great. Like we're moving on, like, cool. Um, it was like easy and it made me feel really safe and comfortable. And that helped me progress into be, being out in the rest of the areas of my life with my family, at work and everywhere else. So. so a lot of the people that we talk to, you know, they take what's happened to them and try to put a positive spin and positive light to it and kind of, you know, pay it forward a little bit and make it a little bit better. So in your coaching, what do you do um, to make the field or, you know, on and off the field, a safe space for your LGBTQ plus athletes who may or not be out? Yep. Um, So first I'm going to say that I'm not, I don't think I'm perfect at it, right? Like, I think that I'm constantly like learning, thinking about things, growing at things, um, you know, figuring out how to be better, but I think that that's okay. And I think the, the number one thing is, I want my team and everyone on it to feel safe all the time to, and to feel like they can talk to me or other people all the time. Right. So like, that's kind of my number one thing. It's like, I'm always going to promise to, to do my best and to be my best and to um, be, and to provide a safe space. Right. And if I notice that anything's not safe, I'm going to do, that's going to be my first priority to try and figure out how to make it safe. But that being said, I think there's some really, some pretty simple things that anyone can do. And that I know that I make a point to do 
right? So beginning of every season, I share my, my name and my personal pronouns, like super easy. And I make everyone else do it too. I don't care if you've been on the team for four years or you're brand new on the team. I don't care if you're in the LGBTQ plus community. I don't care. I don't care anything about it. And you don't even, and you don't have to say, like, I'm not asking anyone to out themselves or anyone else. Just tell me your name and your pronouns. And then I'm really committed to using the appropriate names and, and pronouns at the appropriate times. Um, and sometimes I mess up and I say, sorry, and I move on, right? I, I try not to make big things out of it. Um, but I make it like well-known that, that that's a, a, a point for me. And, you know, on our like team rosters for people who have names that they prefer to go by, I make sure to check in with them. Is this the name you want on our team roster? Cause it's going out on the website and to parents, things like that. So just like asking questions and asking students, like high school students, especially they're old, they're old enough to make their own decisions on lots of things. Right. So we want, I want to be able to ask them and trust them as to like what they want to be called and, and how they want it to appear and, and who they want to know. Right. But then I also, I share my story and I'm like not afraid to talk to all my players openly and honestly about who I am and how I grew up and how I got to where I am and, and why, and who I am, you know? So my, my players know my wife, they call her by name. Um, she's a part of our team. Like from day one, I talk about my life and she shows up to teams. We, we jokingly say she's our director of operations and logistics. Cause she's always <laughs> like, she's helping to sell the extra merchandise or she's running into the closet and getting the game balls when I forgot them. So she, she's a part of our team community and everyone just says, oh yeah, Amanda's here. Go, or I just say, go see Amanda and she'll help you with this, right? Like, it's just a natural thing. Um, and it's just, it's really easy for me to just immediately just talk about her as my wife, right? And to talk about our family. Um, and I hope that that instills some comfort to other people, whether it's, be, whether it's to allow that players can then come to me and talk to me if they want, or just to know that, um, that they, they're seeing someone who is a member of the LGBTQ plus community in a, in a coaching role, being successful or, you know, working with other people. And it's, you know, something that I didn't see, but it's hopefully just something I'm going to make it as, I'm going to be as loud as I can about it. Cause I want to make sure that the people who are out or the people who are struggling can, can see me and, and things like that. Um, yeah. But ultimately it's just like, I try to make, you know, my language and another language just feel really safe. So like, you know, other little things like when we talk about homecoming, I'm, I'm, try, I'm not trying to always say like, oh, who are you going with? Who's your date? I might just say, are you going to homecoming, right? Are you and friends going? Are you going as a group, right? I might tr try and just change my language a little about that. I'm not going to say who's your homecoming king and queen is do you have a homecoming court, right? Are you voting for things, right? So just like really little simple kind of culture changes and language shifts, um, I think can mean a lot um, and, and can make a big impact. And you know what? Some players aren't going to notice it. Like 90% of players aren't going to notice whether I say homecoming court or homecoming king and queen, right? But some players will, and it'll make a big difference for the players that do notice. No, definitely. And then it's, it's awesome to see that, you know, the stuff that I didn't see, because I came from a small little like town in Texas, but I'm pretty sure it does make a big difference to a lot of your students. Um, so do you have any advice for any coaches or anybody who's listening out there about how to make their spaces a little bit more uh, diverse and inclusive and how to keep everything, you know, safe for athletes yeah i mean i think some of the language things to the best of you know your ability to to try and be pointed about that and thoughtful about that but be open and honest right like no one's going to be perfect and have an overnight shift right away but just be you know listen to your players and really like hear what they want um i think there's you know other kind of little simple things like i have you know the clipboard and the the whiteboard that i carry around i have a like a pride sticker on it right and so just like a really simple like identifiable like marker of a safe space. And then, but it's not just about putting the sticker on my clipboard, right? It's a sticker on my clipboard plus my actions that equal the safe space, right? Um, and that's important. Um, and I think, you know, to for expand expanded diversity, thinking about like, are you going into schools and communities and areas? Are you running clinics? Are you are you trying to do a, like actual things to kind of improve what your what your team looks like when they get to you in high school? I know in, in the area in Falls Church where I am. Um, and, and just in kind of Northern Virginia in general, there's not middle school sports. It's just Fairfax County doesn't do teams in middle schools. Um, and field hockey is not a sport that's hugely popular. Like it's not like soccer where everyone plays when they're four years old. Right. And so like I, you know, try to have some clinics and after school programs and things for some elementary and middle schoolers to go to, or I direct them to go to Beyond Sticks, which is a great um, rec program, which is like it's like not a travel team. It's not a super competitive club, but it starts at early ages and really gets um, young boys, girls, anyone who wants to play field hockey, it gets a stick in their hand and it teaches great skills. So, you know, are, are we 
purposely looking at lots of different communities to, to bring our sport to, right? Rather than just the communities that we've always been in or communities that are easier to be in. And it's, it's that those extra steps to just go a little bit further to do that. Um, and some of it involves like gathering old equipment um, and getting some donations or just running things kind of bare bones because there's not, because sometimes sports are, you know, socioeconomically a barrier, right? But there's always a way to do things, right? USA Field Hockey um, has, you know, gives, sends sticks out to different communities and coaches who are willing to do things. I've, you know, run some clinics through them and, and things like that. So there's always a way to increase your diversity and to be more inclusive. It just sometimes takes a couple extra steps to, to go about doing it. Awesome. Um, that's great advice for coaches. Um, next up, I want to ask, do you have any words of wisdom or advice that you would share with student athletes who might currently be struggling with a decision to come out or not? Maybe some words that you wish you had heard back when you were in high school? I mean, I, I think the best advice I can think is just try to find one person who you really know to be an ally, whether they're in the community or not. Just start there. Find just find one person. Because for me, it was really hard to find one person, right? So find one person, talk to them, get comfortable with that. And then, and I think hopefully it'll get easier after that one person, because maybe that one person knows other people that will help you and support you. And, um, you know, you sometimes just have to start with finding one person and telling one person. And that could be a teammate, could be a coach, could be another trusted adult. Um, but I think that's an important first step. All right, so going back to uh, your uh, long career, do you have any highlights so far? Yeah, I mean, I've I've loved working with Beyond Six. I've done it <laughs> for like nine or 10 years, almost as long as the founder, Chrissy, has, has run it. Um, and I just love seeing players learn at a really young age. And especially if I can see them years later playing for high school, that's been a, a real joy for me. But I will say the past uh, three seasons at Justice High School, um, probably would be my ultimate highlight. I, I came into the, the program, the team that was kind of regularly finishing in the bottom bottom half of, the, of their district standings. Um, they had had a lot of coach turnover in several years. Um, and so the first preseason, which was 2019, um, so we start early in August, we focused just a lot on building a positive team culture and community, getting to know each other. I was a new coach coming in. I didn't know any of them. Um, we had a lot of new players on varsity. So just, we've spent a lot of time working on that culture and community. And it, I, I think it translated really well because you could see that everyone was working really well together on the field. And we ended up coming in second place in the district, um, losing the district championship by one goal in overtime. So being really, really close to winning the districts. Um, but then last season in our kind of modified 2020, was really in 2021 season, um, we, we built on that and we won our district championship. So for the first time in 49 years for Justice High School, we were the district, the national district champs. And then we went to the quarterfinals of the regional tournament for the first time in school history period. Um, and, you know, we're already looking to, to build on that success this year and, and hopefully go back to back on champion on district titles this year. Um, and so the, it's just been a really good run at Justice and I've loved it. Yeah, congratulations. That's very cool. Um, this past year, we've seen an awful lot of athletes um, make great strides in the areas of activism and using their large platforms to get the word out about important social justice issues, especially female athletes, frankly. Um, what do you think? Do you think it's important? Do you think that there is a place for um, coaches and players to use their platform to advance social justice? Yeah. Definitely. Um, I think that coaches, coaches and players have like have a unique platform and opportunity um, and an ability to influence players and to influence a community and just and communicate things. I think that, you know, there's a time I think when you're on the field playing, you want to be focused on your sport and your and your goals there. But I think in the larger community, you know, we we ask our players, I'm thinking in a high school realm where I'm asking my players to first be students and then be student athletes. Right. So I'm asking my players to be well-rounded, to follow school rules, to, you know, take care of themselves and their bodies at home. So they're ready. Like I'm asking them to do a lot of things. Right. Um, and I'm asking them to be model citizens. I'm asking them to be role models in school um, and leaders and all that stuff. And so if I'm asking them to do that in their everyday life, I need to be doing that in my everyday life. And why not use, and why not share that on social media? Why not share that in other platforms? Why not talk about these issues that we're preaching to our team communities and talk about them in larger communities, right? Um, we have to, 
we have to talk about how it's important for everyone to feel included everywhere they go, right? We have to talk about how team settings and club settings and communities need to be inclusive of all people, no matter what. Um, and we have to show that we're doing that, right? So I, I'm not just gonna do it with my team. I wanna show that there's a way to do this. I wanna show that this is the way that you in, are inclusive. This is the way that you um, promote diversity and inclusion. And this is the way that you just are are, are nice, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's like, I mean, I don't know a lot of other ways to say it. It's just, it's the way that we're kind uh, to everybody, right? And so, you know, these social justice issues, things like LGBTQ plus awareness, things like Black Lives Matter, these are important things. And they're generally just, they're just human rights. And so if we're not showing our players that we're humans and that we care about all humans, then why are we playing a sport, right? The first, the, the first thing we need to do is, is talk about why we care about other people and, and show that we care about other people. And I think that there's always a place to be doing that. 100%, we say this all the time, come on people, just be better humans. <laughs> yes, right? Like, yes, I, it seems so simple and yet we're struggling at times. Hundreds of years of evidence to the contrary. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, Steph, you recently joined the Team DC Scholarship Committee, uh, which we thank you for. And what made you uh, want to get involved with the committee, especially that committee, which is kind of important because that's our our big, uh, we kind of see that that makes a really big impact in our local community. Yeah, actually, um, one of my seniors from the my first season at Justice in, um, in 2019, one of my seniors, uh, Zoe, had applied for the Team DC Scholarship, and she asked me to write her recommendation, um, which I was glad to do. And so he actually won the scholarship that year and then invited me to the little reception that they had um, when the scholarships were awarded. Um, and it was there that I met Brent and Renee and some other people. And they asked me if I would consider joining the committee. So it was really just, um, it was oh, lucky and fortunate and it, and it was great. And last year was the first kind of full year that I was on the committee and I enjoyed even in virtual setting, getting to know the other people on the committee, getting to know more about Team DC, which is awesome and fantastic. And I hadn't known enough about it. And I don't know how I didn't know enough about it, but I love it now. Uh, so it was just, it was a, a fun year and we got to know a lot of great high school, high school students from the area and award some scholarships. And we're looking forward to the scholarship opening again in the coming months and getting a, lots more applicants and awarding some more well-deserving high school students a scholarship. Yeah, it's, it, it is a great program and um, we're really grateful to have you as a current coach on the committee. We think that it's going to do a lot to round out our efforts and it is exciting. I, one of my favorite parts about being on the board of Team DC has been meeting the scholarship recipients. So definitely worth it. Um, Steph, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us tonight. This has been delightful, and um, we hope that you'll come back and join us again. Before we say goodbye, let me give you an opportunity to repeat your um, team's social media handles or any other information that you think people might be interested in following, whether it's your Beyond Sticks or whatever it is that you think um, might be of interest. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity to do that, and also for the opportunity to be on here. I'm, I'm looking for... Uh, enjoyed it and looking forward to hearing it and, and hopefully coming back. Um, follow Beyond Six. So Instagram, just Beyond Six. And um, our high school team for Justice High School is Justice Focke. So Justice, J-U-S-T-I-C-E-F-O-C-K-U-I. Um, and that's Instagram and Twitter. Um, and then I'm teacher, Ms. Vestal. So teacher, M-S-V-E-S-T-A-L. So if you want to follow a bunch of accounts, um, we're all pretty active. And, you know, we, I... I've tried to be a better uh, Instagrammer in COVID. I've, you know, hopefully improved a little bit um, and, and tried to up my game there. Um, if you'd like to follow my dog, she actually probably has a better <laughs> Instagram account than I do, mostly because I dedicate more time to that. Um, but that's Fala, F-A-L-A underscore DC dog. So you can have all the fun comparing my levels of, of engagement on Instagram based on whether it's my field hockey team, my personal or my dog. Um, but yeah, quarantine was a, a good time for social media antics in this house. I mean, one of I have three cats. One of them has a Twitter account. The other two are not on social media because they're more <laughs> private. But uh, yes, they, hopefully they're not too jealous. Um, I like to believe it's because they're private, not <laughs> okay. not because I play favorites. But 
Yeah, when I started my cat's Twitter, at first I was like, this is a great idea. About an hour later, I started to think there was something very wrong with me. <laughs> but, you know, it's all in good fun. <laughs> I agree. For the first, I, we were committed. For the first, we started pretty quickly into uh, um, like shutdown. We started follows Instagram. And for the first hundred days, we did a post a day. We were committed um, oh, to that. Okay. We've, we've fallen off since then. Um, but we still get some, I mean, also follow has become less exciting. Like I think the beginning of COVID was like really excited. Oh, all the, we're going on all the walks and both my moms are home all the time. And then it was like, wait, we're going on a walk again. No, no, no. <laughs> like my dog no. was the meme of the hiding un, above the kitchen counter. That was my, that was literally my yeah. dog. Follow um, was like, I yeah. get it that you guys are bored, but why is this I'm my not, problem? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Now a lot of her posts involve sleeping because I think she's just still tired, but that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, Steph. This has been great. And definitely we look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you all so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is proudly produced by and a product of Team DC. For more information about Team DC, please visit www.teamdc.org. We want to give credit to Ralph Elston for the design of our logo. Also, our music is provided by DC's Different Drummers Marching Band and was composed by Travis Gettinger. You can always find Under the Bleachers at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on all major podcast apps, including Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share us with a friend who might enjoy listening. Under the Bleachers is hosted by Team DC board members Laura Frere and Gabriel Hernandez. All views and opinions expressed are solely those of the host and participants of Under the Bleachers and do not express the views of Team DC.